From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. It's a difficult job, and attorney Ken Feinberg has agreed to do it, again and again, deciding how much money victims of tragedy are owed. He did this work after 9-11, after Aurora, and now for victims of Catholic sex abuse in Colorado. How do you put a price on trauma? Feinberg joins us. Then, a driver shortage at RTD so severe, the transit agency must reduce service. Temporarily, they say, passengers are bracing. Judging by the number of people on my bus, I wouldn't be surprised if my bus is one of the less popular routes that gets cut. The latest from CPR's transportation reporter. And are there really springs in Colorado Springs? This is one of the most common questions we receive from the public. The answer in Colorado Wonders. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Here's a tough question. How do you decide how much money to give Coloradans abused as children by Catholic clergy? Do some people deserve more than others? Attorney Ken Feinberg will help answer those questions for Colorado, and he has wrestled with similar ones before. He was in charge of distributing money for victims of the 9-11 attacks, the Boston Marathon bombings, and the Aurora Theater shooting, to name just a few. And Ken, welcome back to the program. Thank you. Glad to be back. I'd like to know more about the Coloradans eligible for compensation from the Catholic Church. Tell us a little bit about them, how many there are. Not sure how many because the program just commenced October 7, but there are two categories of claimants. There are those who were um, allegedly abused by the church when they were minors many years ago who lodged some sort of documentation complaint at the time, which was ignored by the church. And those claimants, what we call phase one claimants, consist of all claimants who previously were abused and made their objections known somehow Hmm. to the church. Then there are those claimants, victims, invited for the first time to to register with the fund, with the program, and uh, explain the basic outline of their initial complaint. And again, we'll review it, and if it seems to be eligible, we will send each of them a claim form to fill out as well. So there's really two categories of eligibility, and they have until the end of January uh, to file with the program. Do you imagine, do you anticipate a lot of people coming forward with uh, not new claims, these are old claims, but uh, uh, who have not yet come forward? Yes, I think now that the program is in place and it's been publicized, you will find a fair number, scores, who knows, maybe more, of individuals who will, for the first time, um, allege that they were abused as minors to supplement those who complained at the time and who have already received a claim packet. And you can't say even how many are in the first group who have already come forward? Well, we, we have some raw numbers, I suppose, but until they actually fill out the forms and submit the claim, as opposed to ignoring the, 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 the program, it's very difficult to put any numbers on it. I wouldn't want to say there were 20 or 50 or 100. It includes claimants from throughout the state of Colorado. There are three dioceses, yeah. Boulder, Denver, and Pueblo, 
and they're all invited to file a claim. So we'll see. This We've already received the first few claims, and it's only uh, a couple of weeks. Ah. This money will come from the Catholic Church. Any idea how much victims will get? No, the Church has made it very clear to my co-administrator, Camille Byros, and myself that the Church will pay all eligible claims uh, where the credibility and the corroboration are apparent and that those claims will be paid regardless of the number of claims. Uh, the value of the claims depends on both the nature of the abuse, what exactly uh, did the minor suffer uh, from clergy abuse, and also the number of incidents, how often. We, we, we've had cases involving a claimant who was abused once, and that was it. And then we've had claimants who were abused a hundred times or more over a number of years. Oh so those are the factors that enter into valuing the claim. Yeah, I'll ask you more about those factors, how you decide what the amount should be. But as you describe it, the amount of money sounds like it could be limitless. Uh, is there an end here? No. I mean, there is an end. Of course there's an end. The end is January 31st of 2020, when any and all claims must be submitted uh, to our offices. And Ms. Byros uh, takes the laboring oar of processing each and every individual claim. And there is no cap. There is no aggregate amount where the church has said, do not spend more than $10 million or $20 million or $5 million or $30 million. The church takes the position, I think, credibly and wisely, Every individual claimant who satisfies the criteria should be paid in an amount determined by Ms. Byros and myself, and our decision is unreviewable. The Church has delegated to the two of us the sole independent responsibility to determine both eligibility and the amount of compensation. I mean, could you come to an amount that could bankrupt the Church? Theoretically, I suppose, but if the church certainly has not expressed that concern. The church has said right now, in the interest of um, making sure that all claimants are paid, let's see how many come forward. Let's see what the valuation is that is set by um, uh, the administrators, the independent administrators, and, 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 and the compensation will be paid. And the claimant, once receiving the compensation, will only then sign a release a promising not to litigate against not to the church. Sue. Right. Okay, so you and I spoke years ago about divvying up money for victims of the Aurora Theater shooting, and yes. death and time spent in hospital were clear-cut ways of determining uh, which families and which victims got what. Uh, you have alluded to so far uh, the fact that someone might have been abused multiple times over many years, and that the nature of that abuse might influence what kind of compensation one person gets versus another. Again, that strikes me as a very difficult decision to make. Speak more to those factors. Well, you know, th this is not rocket science. This is a judgment that one has to make based on the credibility of the claim, the, 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 the nature and scope of the abuse and the damage suffered by the victim. 
some of these, uh, in our experience in other dioceses and other jurisdictions like New York and New Jersey and California and Pennsylvania, um, it's not only a question of um, nature of abuse and number of incidents, but also the impact of the abuse on the individual. Yeah, help us understand uh, some, that. Uh, some lives have been destroyed by this. Other more resilient claimants have managed to move on with families and children. And, and, and uh, so it's all over the lot. And what we have to do, uh, Camille Byros and myself, is to try and place the claim in the context of other claims, similarly situated around the country, really, and try and uh, come up with uh, an amount uh, that is consistent and reflects uh, the nature of the claim. No amount of money, no amount of money is going to make these victims whole or satisfied. Uh, it doesn't work that way in the tort system. All you can do is provide some financial recognition and what is very, very interesting about all of these claims, money is not the sole objective or not even the primary objective of those who file with us. What they want, as much as money, if not more, is validation, uh. acknowledgement that the wrong occurred and that they were damaged and that they're credible and that they're telling the truth about uh, what was done to them as, as children. And that very often takes precedence over, um, you know, cutting a check and presenting it to a victim. Ken Feinberg, uh, there are no doubt stories of people who suffered abuse in the Catholic Church and who took their own lives because it was so hard on them. Is there any sense that families who believe that happened to a loved one would be able to file a claim? Sure. They can file the claim. We'd have to evaluate the claim and make a determination as to whether or not the claim is, is credible and, and, and provable, okay. corroborated at least. Um, so yes, that's possible. Attorney Ken Feinberg is a victim compensation expert who has assisted after the 9-11 attacks, the Virginia Tech shooting, and the Aurora Theater shooting. Now he's helping the Colorado victims of child sex abuse in the Catholic Church which is something he's done in other states as well. Call RTD's offices these days, and if you get put on hold, you might hear this. Join our team today. We offer great benefits, including paid training, paid time off, education allowances, medical, dental, and vision plans, and the opportunity for a $2,000 signing bonus. Well, that hasn't worked out too well. RTD is so short of drivers, the agency's staff are proposing significant service cuts, temporary, they say. RTD's board will talk about the idea for the first time tomorrow. 
The possibility worries RTD writer Sarah Burkhauser of Englewood. She's a recent college grad, rode, to, rode RTD to downtown Denver for an internship this summer, and is about to start her first full-time job in the same neighborhood. I live outside Denver, and I commute in, usually with a combination of two buses and a train. In the past several months, I was late to work twice, taking a bus that was a little tardy. And I worry that, you know, if the train system gets more unreliable with these proposed cuts or slower, that I won't be able to make it into work on time, which means I will be driving. LCPR's transportation reporter Nathaniel Miner broke news of the possible service cuts late last week, and he joins us with the latest. Nathaniel, welcome to the program. Hey, Ryan. RTD hasn't released any details, uh, but do we have a sense for which lines might be affected? Well, we know that we're talking about bus and light rail. Uh, we know that we're not talking about the commuter rail lines, the A-line to the airport, G-line to what, to uh, um, Arvada and Wheat Ridge. Okay. Those are all privately operated. They're different. But we're looking at bus and light rail. Um, and basically, uh, what we what I've been told is that they're going to look first at lines at just low ridership, the, the ones out in the suburbs mostly, um, maybe a few in the city on some side streets. Um, we're still trying to figure out uh, if uh, that... We're still trying to figure out really if what temporary means, like they've said temporary. Does that mean a week, a month? We don't know, but I should find out more tomorrow night. RTD says these cuts are necessary because they have too few operators and the ones they have are stretched thin. How bad is the situation? So they, uh, they're short about 150 to 160 operators out of 1,300. So we're looking at over a 10% vacancy rate. Okay. And what that means is that uh, what the situation now is uh, you'll you know leave your house, you'll go to the bus stop, and the bus just won't show up or the train won't show up. So they're dropping runs because they don't have enough people to actually uh, you know drive the buses and trains. Um, and the other thing that's happening is they're forcing people to work a lot of overtime to you know have as few dropped runs as possible. And that's just really stressing a lot of people out. It's been happening for four years now. Are there other agencies uh, around the country, you know, dealing with a similar situation, some context here? Absolutely. It's not unique to Denver. Uh, I talked to Ben Freed, a spokesman with the Transit Center. Uh, It's a research and advocacy group out in New York. And he says, yes, this is happening in cities like San Francisco, Minneapolis, St. Louis. But there is one unique thing about Denver, and that's that RTD is proposing this solution. They are basically admitting that they don't have the workforce to operate their schedules. And it's a burden on their workforce to pretend that they can provide the service that's in the schedule. So he says RTD should actually raise more money so they can run more trains more often. And if they do that, they don't have to force drivers to work split shifts and overtime because, uh, you know, you'll work one eight-hour shift in the morning, you'll be done with the day. Ridership has been dropping. People often complain about spotty service, difficult connections, the type of thing we just heard Sarah Burkhauser talk about. But wouldn't further cuts be self-defeating, you know, making all of that worse and thus RTD less desirable? Right. So critics of RTD and really transit in general call this a death spiral. So ridership goes down, so service is cut. But because service is cut, fewer people ride, you bring in less money. Uh, the situation is a little bit different here in that RTD says these will be temporary, but, you know, we still don't know what temporary means. Right. Now, the union opposes any cuts. Uh, what do they want RTD to do instead? So they want RTD to fulfill some of the promises that it made in its most recent contract agreement uh, to improve working conditions, uh, like getting time to actually use the bathroom. 
Okay, what is RTD's response? I mean, isn't there a way to deal with something that fundamental? Yeah, so RTD spokeswoman Pauletta Tinilas says it is up to operators to take the breaks. But operators have the freedom to stop and take a bathroom break. It is built into the schedules. And while some of those schedules are tight, no operator has been reprimanded for taking a restroom break. And I think that's really the nub of the issue here is that the schedules are so tight that drivers are put into this uncomfortable position. Do you run behind schedule and make a a bus full of people mad or do you use the bathroom? And that's how the union describes it. And they say it's really a no-win situation for their uh, drivers. Now, this lack of drivers... It's been a problem for a long time. So why is it a crisis now? So they, they've done a pretty good job of hiring people. They've hired almost a 1,000 bus drivers and train operators in the last few years. But all, so many of them have left that you're sort of in the same spot. It's uh-huh. a retention issue. Um, and it's been happening for, like I said, four years. And the union told me that it really goes back to this contract they signed in 2013. They locked in pay for a five-year period in 2013. So that was just before Denver's economy really took off. Gosh, I think about what has happened to housing prices since then in Metro Denver. I mean, in general, a lot of things have gotten more expensive. That's right. So this is Bill Jones, the ATU uh, 1001's lawyer. The problem with the five-year contract turned out to be that you don't necessarily know what the contract's going to be doing down the road. And by that, he means you don't know how the economy and the world is going to change around you. And so much changed in that five years that they just couldn't adjust to it. Now they're back on three-year contracts. The last one they signed last year bumped up pay quite a bit to about $20 an hour, but it's clearly not doing enough to keep people on the job. And what does RTD have to say about that? So Paletta Tanilis says neither side could really foresee just how much Denver's economy would change. She really wanted, She really wants to just look to the future and try to come up with ways to improve the current situation. Our employees are our most valued commodity, and our, their quality of life means a lot to us. And so, of course, we're going to do everything we can to try to make the work environment and their employment here at RTD positive. And so that means some of these really painful, although temporary, cuts. We'll learn more this week. CPR's Nathaniel Miner, he covers transportation for us. This state has a fair number of towns with the word springs in the name. Glenwood Springs, Steamboat Springs, Pagosa Springs, El Dorado Springs. The list goes on. And usually these towns are named for a prominent source of spring water. But Carla Houston of Denver wrote into Colorado Wonders, where are the springs in Colorado Springs? Well, CPR's Dan Boyce, who's based in Colorado Springs, sprung into action and got the answer. Hi, Dan. Hey, Ryan. So uh, when Carla first wrote in with this, I realized that I never thought to really ask this question myself. It just hadn't really occurred to me in the year or so that I've lived in the Springs. I guess maybe I just thought it was self-evident, but it's really not. So I met with Matt Mayberry. He's the director of the Pioneers Museum in Colorado Springs. And first thing he says... This is one of the most common questions we receive from the public. Dang it. Okay. 
Uh, uh, Carla is not alone in asking this. I can't wait to find out the answer. Yeah, and again, it is not a simple one. So, those Colorado Springs, are are there? Are there those? Are there Colorado Springs? Yes and no. Yes and no? Right. This starts us down a rabbit hole 150 years deep. What we know about why Colorado Springs was named Colorado Springs comes from William Jackson Palmer, who was the founder of Colorado Springs, railroad magnate, major influence in the settlement of southeastern Colorado. He noted in his own papers that when he came to this part of the the world, really all of southern Colorado, or at least a vast amount of southern Colorado, just had the generic name Colorado Springs. Oh, then Colorado Springs must start setting up some boundaries. Was it around a spring? Well, this is where it gets complicated, but Mayberry says in general. The answer to the question, where are the springs in Colorado Springs, is they're actually in Manitou Springs. Which I imagine Manitou just holds over Colorado Springs head. Yeah, to some extent. Dan, I have to say, this was going to be my guess. I was thinking, what are the nearest springs to Colorado Springs? It, it is Manitou. Did you visit then the source of this? Boy, did I. So here I am, Ryan, at one of the famous Colorado Springs in Manitou Springs. I'm here with Michael Mayo. He is the president of the Manitou Springs Heritage Center. Michael, why don't you describe what we're looking at here? We're standing in front of Seven Minute Springs. Each of these springs in Manitou, like Seven Minute, is set inside of a font uh, that has been created by a local artist. Describe what it was about the springs here in Manitou that made them so highly regarded and so famous. For generations and for hundreds of years, Native American tribal members would come here to Manitou Springs, not only as a gesture of peace, but also to take the waters and drink the waters from Manitou Springs. The natives believed that the waters had medicinal value. Around 1872, a couple of entrepreneurs and the founders of Manitou Springs decided to incorporate these springs into a general resort. So more or less, as the name Colorado Springs and its reputation moved into the world as a place of natural springs or whatever, more often than not, people were talking about Manitou Springs. Well, that's correct. In order to compete with Colorado Springs, Manitou had changed its name. Originally, Manitou was known as the town of Manitou, and uh, in September of 1935, town council passed an, an ordinance authorizing the name change to Manitou Springs, and that was done solely for the purpose of competing with Colorado Springs. So that's part of Manitou just trying to reclaim some of that credit. Well, that, that's exactly right. You know, today we have close to a dozen public springs here in Manitou Springs. And so, yeah, it was done to, to claim some of that credit of being the sole town in the Pikes Peak region that actually has active mineral springs. Okay, that's fascinating. Oh, yep, case closed. The Colorado Springs are in Manitou Springs. Just kidding. The story <laughs> does not stop there. For Matt Mayberry with the Pioneers Museum, uh, he says there is, in fact, a spring in Colorado Springs. In fact, he says there technically are multiple. Most of them are pretty small. The spring that most people would have in a previous era said, well, that's the spring of Colorado Springs, is or was a naturally occurring spring in what we now know today as Monument Valley Park. 
And that park is a long, skinny one that runs alongside the Colorado Springs downtown. The little spring there itself was called Tahama Spring. There was a pavilion built over it, and people could rest in the shade and drink that water. Though I notice you and Mayberry keep talking about it in the past tense. Right. That spring, tragically, was destroyed initially by a flood of Monument Creek in 1935. That damaged the pavilion. And then the spring itself and kind of that whole site was destroyed during a later flood in 1965, 30 years later. However, Tahama Spring is still lurking beneath the ground. Mayberry says there are some in town, historians, preservationists, who would like to dig down and resurrect that spring. Maybe even one day rebuild the pavilion, bringing a true spring to Colorado Springs once again. Dan, thanks. This has been fascinating. My pleasure, Ryan. CPR's Dan Boyce lives in Colorado Springs. What do you wonder about in Colorado? Let us know at cpr.org slash Colorado Wonders. And while you're at the website, check out a photo of the old pavilion over at Tahama Springs. What role might marijuana play at the ballot box? The multi-billion dollar industry is looking for ways to get customers more politically involved. CPR's Benta Berkland explains. Could marijuana voters be a political force in 2020? The Cannabis Voter Project hopes so, and it could be coming to a marijuana dispensary near you. So you'll get a link from the CVP. Uh, It's going to give you the option to um, register with the Cannabis Voter Project as a voter. If you do so, we can give you a one-time 20% discount off your Terrapin flower purchase. Here at Terrapin Care Station in Boulder, staff encourage all their customers to sign up as cannabis voters. It's part of a pilot project Terrapin is testing. The goal is for other companies to run similar programs across the country ahead of next year's presidential election. So the iPads behind you can help you figure that out. And uh, what you're going to do is sign in there with your phone number. You'll also get a text from the CVP. It's the Cannabis Voter Project. Signees will get updates on federal legislation, information on where candidates stand on cannabis issues, and as the 2020 election approaches, reminders on voting. The New York-based nonprofit Headcount is spearheading the effort. The group has long been a familiar site at large concerts, registering more than 600,000 voters. Andy Bernstein is Headcount's executive director and says the Cannabis Project is a new direction for them. There was this thriving community that had many people who maybe felt that the political system was corrupt or didn't apply to them or they just wanted to be off the grid. And yet, if there's ever an example where democracy shapes people's lives, it's cannabis. It's cannabis legalization. And in most states, including Colorado, it has been voters who've legalized recreational pot. And all of those new customers are now central to the project. Megan Lewis is a 35-year-old unaffiliated voter from Denver who uses marijuana. I think it's a great initiative, especially if people are passionate about stuff and not totally into politics like myself, then it will help keep them a little bit more educated as to what's happening and maybe get them out there voting more. Cannabis voters are not politically monolithic. 
but experts tracking the trends say they do tend to be more democratic and younger. Take 23-year-old Haley Wilson. She says she usually votes Democratic, but isn't happy with either major party. She recently signed on as a cannabis voter at a Terrapin dispensary. Wilson says she's most concerned about high health care costs. But candidates' records on cannabis also matter. I think it definitely affects my vote, but I would have to like look into other things and make sure that I am picking the best candidate holistically, like for everything that they're standing for. And that's the big question. How will cannabis voters impact overall politics, if at all? Political strategist Rick Ritter worked on marijuana legalization in Colorado. He says marijuana is rarely the only issue a voter cares about. And in states with legal marijuana, he doesn't know how much users pay attention to the industry's big concerns, like access to banking. Now that it's legalized, you're getting into nuances. And when you get into nuances, voters move on to other areas of concern, whether it be the economy, whether it becomes choice. Still, recreational marijuana remains illegal in most states and federally. And for people who feel passionate about changing that, this project is critical. For a lot of people, this is a medicine. And for other people, this is a choice of freedom. That's guitarist Adam Smirnoff with the jazz funk band Lettuce. They're donating $1 from every concert ticket sold to the project. And when you talk about social justice, then you have to be like, wow, you have 40,000 people who are still incarcerated for cannabis behind bars right now, the majority of them being minorities. The Cannabis Voter Project says it won't push marijuana users to vote one way or another, but it does hope that by next year, it can convince many of them to get off the sidelines and into the political fray. I'm Benta Berkland, CPR News.